0: Well, let's start tonight by turning to Matthew chapter 10. So if you grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> we're continuing. This is our second lesson on this series on discernment. So we're going to read verses 34 through 37. And you might want to what does, it have, what does this have to do with discernment? And I'll ask you afterwards what do you think this passage has to do with discernment, and then we're going to cover it a little later on in the lesson. So Matthew 10, starting at verse 34, reading to verse 37. So this is the word of our Lord. <clears throat> do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I do not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mo- her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those who, of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So what does it have to do with discernment? These words we just read. Uh, I think there is. We're going to take a look at it in a little bit, in a few minutes. But what, uh, just as it hits you for the first time, what do these words have to do with discernment? Well, you have to discern the difference in your ideas with your family about who God is. And so if it's something worthy or important enough to discuss those differences. So discernment in order to figure out what are the important stuff about God to discuss in the family. Is that fair? uh, uh, Okay. What else? Scott? This is kind of an echo off of Linda's, but um, there is a fine line maybe of being truthful to Scripture and who God is, and then also being a belligerent nuisance to families so that you know how to, um, that you're not the stumbling block, but that the gospel and Christ are properly and not you being divisive. Okay, so discernment comes in knowing when you're being truthful the gospel or when you're doing being belligerent and not doing the second, but doing the first. Louis. I'm, I'm looking at um, verse 34, and I'm wondering, since he's not he's bringing a sword and not peace, I'm wondering um, if we need spiritual discernment to, this, to know whether or not we're bringing the sword, or is Christ bringing the sword? Okay, So, similar to what has been said before, are we being offensive, or is the gospel being offensive as we deal with family? Right? That's the idea of being the sword. Is the family being divided because I'm just a jerk? Or is that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay? So, any, any, any different thought that's not connected to this line of thought, all very good, but any different thought that's not connected to this line of thought? Yes, Adam? It seems like there's life decisions here, uh, or indecision, um, failing to take your cross. Okay, later on in the passage, failing to take your cross is a lack of discernment. Okay, all right. So, let's put all those in our data bank, and let's come back to it in a, a little bit. We saw last week that in broad terms, and next week we're going to spend the whole hour or 40 minutes, we have actually uh, dis- defining discernment. but in broad terms, we saw that spiritual discernment is the skill of thinking biblically about life. Spiritual discernment is the skill of speaking of thinking biblically about life. And we saw that lack of discernment. last week, we saw the lack of discernment. Um, points to three unavoidable conclusions. If you, if you have somebody who is consistently lacking discernment in his or her life, there's three things that uh, that points to, to three conclusions that cannot, um, sorry, two slides are the same. First one is, lack of discernment is proof of spiritual immaturity. And we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 5, where it says that, hey, you should be ready to eat meat, and you're still drinking milk, You should be moving on, you're immature, and you don't have discernment. Also, somebody who is consistently undiscerning his life or her life, uh, that is proof, that could be proof, that he or she is backsliding, uh, moving back, diminishing their faith instead of increasing. As, As I said last week, a Christian is always growing. If he or she is not growing, they 're moving backwards. Uh, you cannot be ecstatic as a christian and another another logical conclusion when you look at somebody who likes to sermon in his life is that that person is perhaps probably walking into spiritual death they 're not growing if they 're not developing the sermon in their lives they 're not being able to look at life biblically they 're not moving forward they 're moving backwards, and that eventually leads to spiritual death, and we saw that also in Hebrews chapter 5. But there's some on the positive note. On the other hand, we saw that there are many benefits stored up for those who seek and gain discernment. We saw that discernment is proof of spiritual life. Somebody who's discerning their life is, is, a, is one thing that can help them be assured that the spirit is working in them, that their spiritual life. We also saw that discernment is proof of spiritual growth. As we become more discerning in our lives, we can be assured that we are growing in the Lord. We're producing fruit in the Lord. And then thirdly, discernment is proof of spiritual maturity. In Hebrews 5.14 says that, that with a growing discernment means that we're growing in maturity as well. Tonight, so that was last week, I was giving you a call to discernment, getting you excited about learning about discernment, spiritual discernment. And tonight I want to talk about the challenges of discernment, And I don't mean, like, I want to challenge you to be discerning, which I do. I hope that we can do that. But what are the obstacles to discernment? What are the obstacles for growing in spiritual discernment? What are the things that are keeping us back from growing in spiritual discernment? Because the Bible says that discernment is a skill that must be sharpened by practice. Discernment is a skill that must be sharpened by practice. That's what the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews 5.14, when it says solid food belongs to those who are full of of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. By reason of use, by practice, they are able to discern between good and evil. So discernment is a skill that's gained by, sharpened by practice and gained by practice. Yet, Yet there are challenges that get in the way. Discernment is a skill, and this is where Matthew 10 comes, even though I think what you said was also accurate and so on, but I was thinking in, this term, in these terms, when you, and I was thinking of Matthew 10, 34 through 37, discernment is a skill that does not tend to make us popular. Remember there the sword is Jesus that's bring Jesus the one dividing the family. And how is he divide the family? By the gospel. By having some to believe and some not believe. So discernment, when you're discerning biblically, when you're looking at life biblically, in the context of the scriptures, we are not going to be super popular. Because discernment requires us to make clear and unwavering distinctions between what is good and what is evil. And that's not something that people around us will like very much. So, what are some of the challenges to discernment? What are some of the obstacles? What are the things that might draw us back from being discerning? Chris? Well, kind of what you just said, like fear of man, I guess. Fear of man, all right. Yeah, we want, everybody wants to be liked, right? Yes. What else? What are other obstacles to growing discernment? What are things that might keep us back from growing biblical discernment? Yes, Scott. Um, I, I think of um, being too busy or whatever, where you're not reading the Bible, or then if you if you Do your daily devotions, but then you read it and you don't understand what you're supposed to do with it. Okay, busyness and lack of understanding of the scriptures, even when you're... Okay, what else are things that might keep us back from being spiritually discerning? Heather? Getting tired from the opposition. Just, yeah, wearing down Mm -hmm. from all the opposition from the world. Okay, what else? Questioning. You're right, you know, questioning if it's so, Doubting the faith itself. Yes. The, the, and that's really, I mean, I remember doing the whole COVID thing and, and uh, you know, felt like we we're always going against the mainstream. And I thought, man, are we doing this, the right thing? Can, can we just go along with it for a little bit just to alleviate? And that comes um, in play as well. Any, what else? I'm going to suggest three things, and then the last one I'm going to split to three more things. So six things, but it's three big numbers and three little numbers under the third one, okay? So three things that are challenges or obstacles in pursuing discernment, in our growth in discernment. The first one is in- internal influences to ourselves. Internal influences to ourselves. Our own self gets in the way of our going in discernment. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 is a verse that I think we all have heard quoted and said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, the ESV translates desperately sick or diseased, kind of the same idea. Who can know it? And verse 10 says, God knows the heart, but man doesn't. Uh, humans don't even know their own hearts and we all have a sinful nature from the moment of conception. And when we are born again, we're given a new heart, we're given a new nature, and yet wickedness continues to dwell within us. That's what the whole sanctification process is. is by God's grace working alongside the Holy Spirit to eliminate that wickedness that's left even after we've been given a, a new nature. And even though we have been saved and regenerated by the Holy Spirit... We hold on to our sin because something that still is drawn to it. And we see even that in Testimony of the Apostle Paul, you can go home later and read Romans seven fifteen to 20, where the Apostle says, hey, the things I know I should do, those I don't. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, those I do because of the remaining indwelling sin in the flesh. And we struggle with that, so there's internal influences that keep us from pursuing biblical discernment, from growing in biblical discernment. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit indwells in us and is renewing us into the image of Christ as we seek to be spiritually discerning. But it's work. It's work. We're fighting even ourselves as we grow. So that's why the Apostle says in Philippians 2.13, that we are to work out our salvation. Here's salvation in the context of sanctification, not that first moment where we come to faith in Christ. We are to work out our salvation, sanctification with fear and trembling. It's a work. And we do that because God is working in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. So internal influences is the first thing. The first thing that brings us, the obstacle that keeps us from pursuing discernment, pursuing being able to see life from a biblical perspective. The second one is spiritual influences. While we must be prepared to fight against the internal influences of our fallen natures, we must also deal with external spiritual influences, primarily the devil. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, the devil he says, be sober, be vigilant, vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, Peter says, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering, sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Satan is not concerned about what unbelievers do. It doesn't matter to him. Has anybody here read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? I, I hope it's a good one to read. It's a light, it's, it's an easy reading, uh, and uh, is entertaining and super creative. But him, him uh, uh, Screw Tape is the uncle, right? Screw Tape, screw tape is the uncle, correct? Warmwood is the nephew. Okay. Screw Tape makes a point. He said, "Don't worry about the world. Don't worry about those that are not saved. They are ours already. Our Our focus is on the believer." So Satan is all about being in your, world, in, your, in your way. He doesn't want you to develop spiritually. Yet at times, even what he suggests looks good and looks godly, but yet it's just one degree off of what God says. And then one degree off, by the time you realize you've gone a long ways away from what God says, right? Pa- Paul says that he appears like what? Like an angel of light in Second Corinthians eleven, verse fourteen, Paul also tells us that our fight, our battle, our life is a spiritual battle, and we're bringing down strong strongholds of wickedness as we fight. So we have these spiritual influences that are keeping us from going in the Lord. You must believe this: Satan is fully committed to our downfall and is committed to keeping us confused. Confusion is great if you're on Satan's side of the equation. He loves a confused church. He loves a church that's confused about the Word of God. He loves a church that's confused about the Gospel. He loves lack of clarity. He loves fuzzy ideas. He loves gray areas. He loves it's complicated. Because that distracts us from pursuing spiritual discernment. A way to overcome this challenge is putting on the full armor of God. Somebody asked me on Sunday, one of the hymns we sang said, panoply, the panoply of God. That's just another word for the full armor of God. And we it is told us there in Ephesians 6 that that was given to us in order to fight wicked attacks. So if we wanted to resist spiritual influences... Put on the whole armor of God. And it doesn't mean that you have to recite yourself and put on the helmet. No, no think about the, 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 the uh, figurative ways that Paul is talking about faith and righteousness and the spirit and the word. We have truth. We have righteousness. We have faith we Have salvation. We have the spirit to guard us. We have the word of God to battle for us. And we can do battle against the spiritual emphasis so we can grow in discernment. So, internal influences, internal, not eternal, internal influences, spiritual influences. The third one, remember the third one is going to be divided into 3 subpoints. The third one is cultural influences that also get in the way of our developing spiritual discernment. Just, just as we need to be prepared to deal with influences that come from within... And from the spiritual realm, we also must be prepared to deal with influences arising from the culture in which we live. And I said we're going to consider three under this. I lied. It's four. Four things. Four of the most prevalent cultural influences that present obstacles to pursuing spiritual discernment first cultural influence of that is an obstacle is just a secular worldview on our part. Lack of a Christian worldview. Lack of being able to think Christianly about life. That's all that a worldview is. A worldview is a set of presuppositions (coughs) that we use to look at the world, the world that we live in, and interpret life. That's our worldview. We all have it. You may not be aware of it, but we all have it, a set of presuppositions, a set of rules, a set of things that we use to interpret everything around us. To use a word that has more of a negative connotation, these are our biases. Biases are not necessarily wrong. They're not necessarily bad unless they are unbiblical biases. So every person has a worldview, whether he or she is aware of it and that worldview acts like a, 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 to quote Nancy Piercy, that worldview acts like a mental map that tells us how to navigate the world effectively, at least the way that we think is effectively. And if that mental map is not governed by the scriptures, then that map is not leading us to what God made us to, to do, to glorify him and to enjoy him. A research that was conducted in 2003, and I'm sure things have not gotten better since 2003. Uh, it, uh, this research included two, 2033 adults that claim to be born-again Christians, and that research determined, so 19 years ago, that fewer than 99 percent, fewer than nine percent of those who consider themselves born-again Christians have a Christian worldview. And they use only six very basic presuppositions or facts to judge that. Their worldview is constructed by these six things. These are the things that you're going to look through life. And only 9% could agree to all six of them. First one. Jesus lived a sinless life. Second one. God is all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe. And he still rules over it today. Three. Salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Four, Satan is real. Five, Christians have a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people. Six, the Bible are, is accurate in all of its teachings. These are minimal presuppositions for a Christian worldview, and yet only 9% of those who consider themselves born again Christians were able to agree with all nine. All six so most statistically most of us here do not have a Christian worldview. I hope that we are on the outlier on this on this uh, statistical um, fact, but statistically most of us here don't have a Christian worldview and I think. That's true. Even we here may fail to consistently look at all of life through a Christian worldview because we are influenced by culture. The, 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 old, the, the, the worldview we see around us is one that refuses to delineate an antithesis between good and evil. The world we live in cannot; it refuses to say that there is good and there is evil and we should be against one and for the other. There's an antithesis. There's a fight between those two. That does not, is not recognized today. A biblical worldview is rooted in an affirmation of the opposing forces of good and evil. To, to have a biblical worldview, we have to acknowledge there is good and there is evil. The worldview of our culture has gone beyond saying there is no absolute truth. We are, we are in a post-postmodern world. And in the postmodern era... Uh, the idea was there's no absolute truth. Your truth, my truth, all truths can be equally good even if they're contradictory. We're, we're past that. We live in a culture that says that there is truth, there is absolute truth, and is the opposite of what God says. It's no longer okay for you to think that transgenderism is okay and me to think not. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now... Or we live in a society that unless you affirm what is opposite to what God says, you have lost the ability to speak, and yet you are considered as not having the truth. Evil is good, and good is evil. And those are influences that affect us. This, this secular worldview, worldview encourages a mindset that in, in turn... Rejects discernment as unnecessary, unnecessarily divisive, and that's what the church is the church now as a whole. The evangelical church in the United States considers discernment unnecessarily divisive and discerning Christians as those who cause schisms in the body of Christ. So we have to be aware of that. A second, a second cultural influence is a low view of Scripture. You know, these. These two challenges to spiritual discernment are related. Christians adopt a secular worldview because they have a low view of the Scriptures. The bible Church was born out of the struggle for the inerrancy of the Scriptures, the fight for the, the truth of the Scripture, the Scriptures of freedom from stake, inspired by God, and so on. And that struggle was largely won in evangelicalism in the United States. But it gave place to an even more dangerous struggle the struggle for the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Uh, Jim Boyce you may have heard of that name. He was the pastor of Tenth Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. You know his last book. He died in two thousand. His last book, which came out in two thousand, was on the five souls of the Reformation. He said this: "He says, inerrancy is not the most critical issue facing the church today. The most serious issue, I believe, is the Bible's sufficiency." While Christians are eager to embrace the Bible and to treat it as a precious possession, few are willing to give to it the preeminence it demands for itself. We pay lip service to the Bible, but we don't really live as if that is sufficient for everything concerning every matter of faith and every matter of practice. Often, people, Christians, read and obey the Bible on their terms. Expect it to govern only what they allow it to do. We are more, a whole lot more like Thomas Jefferson than we're willing to admit. At least Thomas Jefferson was honest. Thomas Jefferson grabbed the Bible, grabbed a pair of scissors, and literally cut out everything he didn't like in it. We often do that. We tell the Bible what it can tell us instead of actually being governed by the scriptures. When we reject the doctrine of the sufficiency of the Scriptures, either consciously or in practice, we allow ourselves to depend on things other than the Bible as our guide to matters of life. Sorry, my notes got out of our order here. <clears throat> So we said, okay, we don't depend on the Bible. And we may not even say it, but we practice that. We're not going to look at the Bible to figure out all the matters of life. We start depending on other things. In particular, people begin to depend upon mysticism, upon ways of supposedly knowing God apart from the Bible. They forsake the biblical reason in favor of feelings or voices or visions or other subjective means of supposedly knowing God, means that only they can interpret is no longer objective where the whole body of Christ can interpret. Only they can interpret. Oh, God told me to do this. Well, I guess God told you. No, our response is, where? <laughs> Show me. Because that's how God speaks. It should not be what settles it. I actually asked that question. Oh, <laughs> I need to tell Andrew what not to do as a principal, which was, was a lot of what I did <laughs> as a principal. A, p- a parent told, came in and told me that God had told them they needed to take the kids out of the Christian school and go to the public school. I literally grabbed my Bible and said, Where? And then they left, mad. I don't know why, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the question. This is a deadly error. Because spiritual discernment must be founded upon God's objective revelation of Himself in the Scriptures, not on some feeling, not on some vision, not on some message we got somewhere else, but on the Scriptures. We cannot be spiritually discerning unless that discernment is based on the Scriptures. We can only judge between what is wrong and what is right when we know what God says to be true. Not just ourselves, not the subjective dream or vision or whatever, but what God objectively says to be true to everybody in the Bible. And then another cultural influence, number three, is a low view of theology. In a book that he wrote in 1993, and I'm throwing out these dates for you to see that this is something that's been with us for a while, and that hasn't gotten any better. But David Wells wrote a book, wrote a book uh, in 1993 called No Place for Truth. And in the introduction, he, he relates this story of a student that came to him after he finished teaching a, a class, an introductory class, a college-level class on theology. The student comes to him and says this. Uh, the, the, well, says, he told me, the student told me, that he was one of those I had described who felt petrified by the prospect of having to take this course. As a matter of fact, he said he had uh, he had, had a mighty struggle with his conscience about it. He was asking himself, was it right to spend so much money on a theology course that was going to be so irre- irrelevant to his desire to minister to people in the church? And he wasn't saying that Wells' course was irrelevant. He was saying that studying theology was irrelevant to ministry in the church. Now, can we break down that word, theology? It's literally the study of God. How is that irrelevant to ministry in the church? And perhaps none of us would be so bold to say that theology is not relevant for the church, but I wonder whether we think that at times, even here. Give me something practical, not this trendy or election or covenant stuff. Or, I'm glad that we're studying a practical book, not a theology book. What is that? That's a low view of theology. All theology, if it's drawn from the Bible, is practical. Give me a category of theology on the spot, And I can tell you how it's going to affect your life. Because all of theology, if it is biblical, is practical because we are not just hearers of the word, we're doers. And if the theology is from the Bible, it will allow us to do something for the glory of God. The thing is that when theology is downplayed, it is no longer possible to defend beliefs that are structured according to systematic logical, biblical principles. We are left instead with a hodgepodge of disparate, sometimes contradictory beliefs that bear little resemblance to biblical Christianity. And as theology falls out of favor, the pursuit of discernment becomes even more difficult and unpopular. So that is an influence that we have to avoid if we want to grow in discernment. We need to value the study of God. And lastly, less cultural influence is a low view of God, especially His holiness. We tend to think that when the Bible speaks of the holiness of God, it is speaking primarily about the fact that He's pure and sinless. And it does speak about that, but that's not the primary meaning of holiness when directed to God. When the Bible says God is holy, the primary thing the Bible is saying is that God is not us. He's unlike us. He's nothing like us is completely other than we are we tend to think about God as us just bigger right I mean I I think that's often uh, that's how we think of God us but just bigger more powerful can do more things no God is completely unlike us and that's why we needed the son to come in the flesh so that we could relate to God because otherwise we couldn't even figure him out That's why we need the Bible, because without the Bible, and we need the general revelation, because with those those two revelations, we couldn't even figure out that there was a God. He's so other than us. And yet, we make God this little genie in the lamp that's just there to do whatever we want. And if that's our God, we're not going to be able to grow in spiritual discernment. I'm not super excited. I'm not very excited about this topic, so I'm sorry. am <laughs> just putting you to sleep on this one. Um, but these are real challenges. And if we want to go in, in, in spiritual discernment, we need to be aware of them. These three challenges, these obstacles to discernment, that we need to be very aware of them. That we, are, that we have this internal influence that tries to keep us from growing discernment. We have this spiritual influence in Satan trying to keep us from Growing discernment, we have also these cultural influences that are trying to keep us from going discernment. So it's a challenge to growing discernment. It's, 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 it's not an easy thing, it's something we need to practice and work. It has to be based on the Word of God. All right. I'm still four minutes net positive because I ended Sunday school early on Sunday. Um, so. <laughs> Any questions or last comments before we close in prayer? Lois, or is that we just praising the Lord? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but um, it, it seems to me we're talking about spiritual discernment as a result of uh, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, but I'm also um, thinking about the gift of spiritual discernment. Is there a difference Uh, No, every Christian is given the ability to be spiritually discerning. True. Yes. Because it's not that spiritual is a result of growth or the result of maturity. They are the same. Every Christian is called to grow and to mature. And spiritual discernment is in that process. Go hand in hand. It's not the one leading to the other. They are happening together. It's part of being mature, is to be spiritually discerned. It's part of it being growing, to be spiritually discerned. And that's, every Christian's called to do that. Anything else? Okay, next week, Lord willing, we're going to actually now define more carefully what spiritual discernment is on our third lesson. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that... You are good to us, that You don't leave us to ourselves, but You reveal Yourself to us through nature and through Your Word, and ultimately through Jesus Christ. So help us to be faithful to You, to Your Word. Dismiss us with Your blessings tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.